Welcome back, friends. Thanks for joining us. We continue our examination of the documents of Vatican II. In today's episode, we're going to look at Dei Verbum, the Word of God. This is the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. This document concerns the whole issue of revelation, God's transmission of His holy truths, which are necessary for our salvation. Of the documents of Vatican II, this is one of the key documents because it centers itself around a key issue of our faith, revelation, the means by which God communicates to us those things we need to know. Revelation comes from a Latin word, revelare, to unveil. Remember in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there was this veil that covered the tabernacle in which contained the tablets of the law. And when our Lord Jesus died, the veil was torn in two, symbolizing that now full revelation had occurred because Jesus Christ is the full revelation of the Father to the world. In this document, we're going to look at some very important aspects of revelation. What revelation is, what it is not, its import on our Catholic faith. In this document, we're going to look at the key issues and some things that have not necessarily changed in church history, because as Pope John Paul, or excuse me, John the 23rd told us as he began the council, there is going to be no new substance of faith, no new doctrines or dogmas, but a new way in communicating those eternal truths. We read in the document, by divine revelation, God wished to manifest and communicate both himself and the eternal decrees of his will concerning the salvation of mankind. This is in paragraph 6. The sacred synod professes that God, the first principle and last end of all things, can be known with certainty from the created world by the natural light of human reason. It teaches that it is his revelation that we must attribute the fact that those things which in themselves are not beyond the grasp of human reason can, in the present condition of the human race, be known by all men with ease, with firm certainty, and without contamination of error. This statement from Vatican II is verbatim quotation from Vatican I. Most people think of Vatican I as defining papal infallibility, which it did. But it also concerned itself with revelation, that you and I, as human beings, can know about God from the created world, from things that God had already made, the universe, our planet, the animals, you and I. We can discern from creation that there is a creator. We can discern from the created world, using our natural reason, different things about God. And we see this beautifully in St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, in his Quinque Via, The Five Ways of Proving the Existence of God. He goes step by step in showing that just by reason alone, one can conclude that there is a God, a supreme being, a prime mover, a necessary being, someone who gives essence of his very existence into us. He sustains us. It is his providence. God is being himself. Remember when Moses meets the Lord and he says, whom shall I tell the people sent me? I am who am. God's essence is being. So from the world we can discern that there is a God. Now we're going to look at how God reveals himself. I have a chart here which I would like us to look at.
this will help us understand where the council is coming from in terms of revelation. God reveals himself to us through the world, through natural reason. Through creation, we can determine that there is a God. God also reveals himself through inspiring the sacred authors to write sacred scripture. And so I can know about God from the world, but I can only know so much. I can only know that there is a God. I can know certain qualities about that God. But to know that there is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know that God loves me, wants to know about me, I must know that from Scripture. And of course we have Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of revelation. He is the incarnate Word, the Word made flesh. Now in this diagram that was done, we can see that if I as an individual only know about the world and nothing else, I can fall into secular humanism. If I as an individual only limit myself to Scripture, then I can fall into fundamentalism. I also need, as a Catholic Christian, the Church. The Church doesn't supplant the world and the Bible, but it pulls them together and leads me to Christ. Because as we know from St. Paul, the Church is the mystical body of Christ. She is the bride of Christ. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. He who hears you hears me. So God uses the Bible, He uses the world, He uses His church, and especially all three are pulled into our Lord Jesus Christ. Going on with the document, therefore, in paragraph 7, God graciously arranged that the things he had once revealed for the salvation of all peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture of both testaments are like a mirror in which the church during its pilgrim journey here on earth contemplate God from whom she receives everything until such time as she is brought to see him face to face as he really is. We know that the church wants us to firmly believe that God reveals himself to us, not only in the world, but directly. Supernatural revelation. Why is that? Because of original sin, our human nature was wounded. Vulneratus esse, as Thomas would tell us in the Summa in Latin. We're wounded in our nature. Our nature wasn't destroyed. It wasn't corrupted, but it was wounded. And one of the consequences of original sin is that our intellect is darkened as well as our will being weakened. That darkened intellect, therefore, prevents every single human being from knowing things as clearly and as easily as they should. So even though God reveals himself in creation, not everybody can discern that right off the bat. Some people need help. Some people's thinking may be cloudy. Therefore, God, in his infinite goodness, despite our sinfulness, decided to complement our human reason so that we're not left only to know about him from creation, an indirect revelation, but a direct revelation, a supernatural revelation. God speaking to man directly, and he does this in the Word. You and I, as Catholic, as Catholic Christians, are a people of the Word, the Word of God, Dei Verbum. 
That word is both spoken and written. The spoken word is what we call sacred tradition. The written word is sacred scripture, the Bible. And two of them form one source, as Vatican II will teach us in this document. One source, and that source is Jesus Christ. So it's not that sacred tradition and sacred scripture come from two different viewpoints. No, they're not at odds with each other. They're not in competition with each other. They're not contradicting one another. They come from the same source, Jesus Christ. He is the full revelation of the Father to the world. And so our Lord speaks orally to his apostles. They hear what he has to say. They speak that word to others. Others speak that word. And then in the fullness of time, we have the sacred authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Paul. We have Jude, who now put into writing. Here's where inspiration then will come in, where God now motivates those sacred authors to write those things and only those things he wants written. But before the text is written, it must be spoken. And so these two beautiful fonts by which revelation comes to us come from the same source, Jesus Christ, God himself. And understanding this is important because so many times people think, well, we as Catholics only believe in tradition. And sometimes we as Catholics think that our Protestant brethren only believe in Scripture. And yet we see that both of these come from the same place. And it is the Lord Jesus who conveys these truths to us. For the very fact of the books of the Bible, that we have 27 books in the New Testament, is by sacred tradition. There is not one single word in the Bible from Genesis to the Apocalypse that tells us how many books there are. How do we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only Gospels? Neither one tells us about the other ones. It is the tradition of the church, sacred tradition, the oral tradition of the apostolic age that tells us that there are only four Gospels. And the church solemnly defined this. The church teaches us this. So going on with the document, we see in paragraph 8, the tradition that comes from the apostles makes progress in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. See, because revelation comes from one source, God, and the Holy Spirit inspires the sacred authors to write the sacred text, the scriptures, the Bible, it's the same Holy Spirit who is the author of sacred tradition. It could be no other way. Now, when the church creates a tradition, then we use the small letter T, tradition. But when it's a tradition that is from God himself, the ultimate source, then we use the capital T, or call it sacred tradition. In paragraph 9, we see sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate with one another. For both of them, flowing out and from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Sacred scripture is the speech of God, the locutio dei, as it is put in down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been trans entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Thus it comes about that the church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. Hence, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feeling of devotion and reverence. Again, the Council wants us to realize that Revelation comes to us 
from both sacred tradition and sacred scripture. I have another chart here I'd like to show you to give us a better uh, understanding, an example of what the Council is telling us here. Here again are our quotes from Dei Verbum, specifically paragraph 7, which tells us sacred tradition is that which was done by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 10. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single deposit of the Word of God, which is entrusted to the church. We just went over that just a few seconds ago, but it, you cannot state it enough. And paragraph 11. To compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who all the while he employed them in this task made full use of their powers and faculties. A quote from Pius XII. So that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written, and no more, a reference to Pope Leo XIII. Since therefore all the inspired of Scripture firmly, faithfully, infallibly teach that the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to confide to the sacred Scriptures. Basically, this statement tells us that the Holy Word of God, sacred Scripture, comes to us from sacred tradition. Because, first of all, Jesus had to speak these words of his. He had to do the deeds he did. And then it was talked about. People told others. Peter, Paul, Andrew, James, and John told others what Jesus said, what he did. Then the Holy Spirit inspires the authors to write. The Pontifical Biblical Commission in 1964, in talking about the historicity of the Gospels, talks about a three-stage development of how the four Gospels came about. The first stage is our Lord's ministry, what He actually said and did. So you know Jesus has the Sermon on the Mount, He performs His miracles, He suffers, He dies, He rises from the dead. The next stage is what we call oral tradition. The Apostles tell other people what Jesus said and did. And then the last stage, the sacred authors, the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write down what Jesus said and did faithfully as the church will tell us. One last chart I have for us here. is a quote from Pope Leo XIII, which is footnoted in this document of Dei Verbum. Pope Leo XIII wrote in 1893 an encyclical letter, Providentissimus Deus, a beautiful definition of inspiration. Inspiration consists in that supernatural influence by which God so arouses and directs the sacred authors to write, assist them in writing, so that all and only what he himself wills do they correctly formulate in their minds, determined to write faithfully and express aptly in an infallibly truthful manner. What that means for you and I is that inspiration is God moving the sacred author, whether it was Moses, whether it was Isaiah, whether it was King David, whoever wrote a book of the Old Testament, any of the New Testament authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter. God is the ultimate author, but he uses human instruments. 
Let us look at what inspiration is not. This is what we call the via negativa, showing what something is not so we can understand what it is. Inspiration is not subsequent approbation, where the Holy Spirit is portrayed as an editor. It's not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write the text and then submit it for the Holy Spirit's approval. I don't like this. Cross that out. Some theologians are of that ilk, and it makes no sense. Inspiration is not negative assistance, an attempt to define biblical inspiration in terms of papal infallibility. It's not as if the sacred author is writing something, and as soon as he writes something that's not correct, the Holy Spirit takes control of him, or prevents him from writing that which is not correct. That's a negative way in which the Holy Spirit intervenes. That's papal infallibility. We believe the Holy Spirit would prevent the Roman pontiff from speaking error if it was on faith and morals, and he wanted it to bind in conscience on all Catholics. We believe the Holy Spirit would prevent him from doing that. That is a negative action. Inspiration is a positive thing. It means the Holy Spirit is motivating the author to write these things, and only the things that God wants written. It's not verbal dictation. It's not the Holy Spirit whispering as a little dove on Matthew's shoulder, Psst, here, write this down. Because dictation doesn't need a human being. An angel could have done that. God could have written it down himself. Inspiration is not restricted only to faith and morality texts. When we look at the Bible, we see much more than just religious truths. We see more than theological truths. We see human life in its fullness. We see humanity at its best and at its worst. We see poetry. We see literature. We see analogy, metaphor. We have our Lord Jesus himself using different uh, figures of speech. I am the vine, you are the branches. Is Jesus calling himself now uh, a bunch of grapes? No. When he says, talks about different analogies, when he says he's the light of the world, is he saying that he's now a candle or a lamp? He's speaking metaphorically, analogously. So our Lord uses different types of speech. So do the sacred authors. Pope Pius XII, in his encyclical Divino Aflante Spiritu, tells us, the inspired writer in composing the sacred book is the living and reasonable instrument of the Holy Spirit and impelled by the divine motion, so uses his faculties and powers that from the book composed by him may easily infer the special character of each one and as it were, his personal traits. Vatican II reminds us, quoting uh, Pius XII, that the author chooses what he wants to say. The evangelist is not all of a sudden possessed by God or an angel and starts to write. He decides what he wants to put there. He's ultimately motivated by the Holy Spirit, so it is only those things which God wants, but the free will is still intact. And so when Matthew, who's writing for a Jewish audience, has Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, the Jewish audience would be appealed by this because why? Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai. Jesus gives the new law of love on the Sermon on the Mount. Now we see in Luke's Gospel, Jesus gives a sermon on the plain. Because Luke's writing for a Gentile audience. Does this mean that Luke made it up? No. It means Jesus probably gave two sermons. Our Lord, being a good preacher, being a good rabbi, is going to give his message more than once, in more than one place, and since there was no television, there was no fax machines or internet, there would be nobody going, oh, we heard this one before. Our Lord, to give emphasis, would undoubtedly give the message again and again, but maybe alter it, depending on his audience. So Luke remembers 
or is told about the time Jesus gives a sermon on the plain. And Luke writing for Gentiles, Gentiles are used to having philosophical arguments on equal playing ground. Mark writes for a Roman audience. So Mark's gospel has very few sermons of Jesus, very few dialogues, but lots of action. He's writing for Romans. These are members of a police state, an empire. They like to see things happen. So in Mark's gospel, things happen one after another. So each author gets to choose what he wants to put in there. He doesn't make it up. They all know the facts, whether they know them directly because they were there, Matthew and John being original apostles, or Luke and Mark getting him from some second source. Luke probably getting a lot of his information from the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mark a lot from St. Peter. But how they phrase things, God lets them choose. He ultimately inspires them, but he lets them choose the phrase, the adjectives that are used. Let's go back to our document then. We're told the task of giving authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in written form or tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. You see, it's so important because if we have these two channels coming from the same source, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, who's going to authentically interpret that for us? When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, who tells us that he's speaking figuratively there? Why don't we go around taking out our eyes every time we look at something sinful? When he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, why don't we chop off our hands when we steal something? Why do we know he's speaking figuratively there? Why, is we as, why do we as Catholics know he's speaking literally when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? Because the church tells us this is figurative, this is literal. Without the church to interpret that, the text itself can lend it itself either way. So that's why Jesus said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Whatever you declare bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. He gives this authority to his church because he knows the church is necessary to interpret the scripture. The church doesn't replace scripture. The church is subservient to the word of God. But the word is both spoken and written. Jesus is the word. The word made flesh. In the old Trinitine Mass, we used to have the last gospel, which is the beginning, the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, in principio erat verbum. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verbo caro factum est. The Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word. Now, when we're looking at this beautiful document, it goes, to, it goes in, into much more description of the Old Testament, which is as important to us as Christians as it is for our Jewish brethren. We should not think the Old Testament is not important or necessary for us because the Old Testament talks about the, the covenant, the promise. Moses is told, Sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over their homes. And then they're led by the exodus into the promised land. They're led out of physical slavery into the promised land of Canaan. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do, the Messiah. The blood of the spotless lamb is on the doorpost of the cross. The angel of death passes over, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Now death no longer has a claim on us we have the potential of heaven now because of Christ's death. And there is an exodus from this world into the promised land of heaven. So all that happens in the Old Testament is a 
foreshadowing of the fulfillment that will occur in Christ. So we must learn and know about the Old Testament. And it is the inspired Word of God as much as the New Testament. But of course the New Testament has a higher place for us as Christians because it tells us what Jesus actually said and did. The Vatican, Cardinal Ratzinger, the Pontifical, Pontifical Biblical Commission remind us the Gospels are historical. They tell us not everything Jesus said and did because John's Gospel tells us if everything he said and did were written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for all the books. But what's in there actually happened. He did it. But of the New Testament, the priority of all those 27 books, of course, goes to the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why in church we kiss the Gospel book. We stand when it is proclaimed. We incense it. Because the Gospels tell us the life of Christ. The epistles are the application of that in the early church and for our daily living. So this beautiful document, Dei Verbum, gives us no new doctrines, but gives us an old doctrine in a new light. Tradition and scripture, but we see it from the same source of God himself, and he reveals this to us because he loves us. He didn't have to. He could have left us on our own, that we could have found out about him indirectly through creation, but he didn't want to leave it to that because of our sinful nature, not everyone knows everything the same way at the same time. Out of love, he reveals. And not just the spoken, or not just the written word, but the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. He is the revelation. He says, the Father and I are one. When you see me, you see the Father. So when we look at Christ, we see God in his totality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see love, we see faith, we see truth. This beautiful document, therefore, is pivotal for Vatican II, but for us as a church in general. It's something that we should cherish, but the Word of God, the spoken and written Word of God, are the cornerstones of our faith. It's upon that which the church herself is built, and it's that which she guards and protects and shares with us. So I encourage you often, as you read the text of the Bible, read also the tradition of the church, particularly the, the, the conciliar documents and the catechism. I thank you for your kind attention. We hope you tune in again. May God bless you and Mary keep you.